Welcome to Train of Thought. My name is Rob Tobias, and this is a interview show that I've been doing for well over a year. And this is the first time that I've actually repeated a show that I recorded uh, earlier. This was done last year, one of the one of the first shows that I did uh, for Train of Thought. Uh, but it's also the first time I think that one of my guests has passed away. So we lost Neil Miller uh, in early June this year. And so in his honor for friends and family and also for folks that uh, didn't know Neil, here's a chance to hear uh, about some of the things he did in his life. He was well known um, in my group for his master basketball exploits. Uh, he was also a filmmaker and an activist and uh, just uh, a good friend and a good guy. So with that in mind, uh, here is my interview with Neil Miller. Welcome, Neil. Thank you for inviting me. We've known each other a few years. Yes, we, exactly. We met on the basketball court. Exactly, yes. And um, that's one of your claims. To, you have many, a few claims to fame, but uh, Masters Basketball, not many people know, know about it. Tell me just a little bit about uh, your involvement with Masters Basketball. Yeah, well, I, uh, of course, I played in, um, in high school in Chicago, um, we we won the city championship there in 1952, um, and um, went on to uh, play f uh, at Illinois uh, and at Wisconsin a short time, um, and then uh, pretty much dropped out of basketball. But then uh, we had a rivalry with um, uh, a team in Chicago for three years. Our two teams battled for the city championship, uh, DuSable High School, which was an all-black school. And uh, our school was, uh, Roosevelt High School was primarily a Jewish team. Uh, we had, I think, two Gentiles on our on our roster. And, and did you tell me yours was maybe the first, last all-white we team? We were the last all-white team to win the city championship. And we won it in 52, and then they won it in 53 and 54. But uh, 37 years later, through a chance meeting of one of the players from their team and ours, we ended up playing a reunion game against them. And it was quite remarkable, and it got me back into playing basketball. I played some semi-pro ball in, in industrial leagues uh, for a while uh, in southern central Illinois. But that really got me back into it. And from that, we formed the first Masters basketball team. At that time, it was 50-plus, age 50-plus, uh, in Chicago and went to the, the one of the first uh, uh, national Masters basketball tournaments uh, in, in uh, Coral Springs, Florida. And that sort of got me back into it. And it's been uh, some of those players, and it changes over the years as as guys get injured or drop out, and other guys discover it and join. So uh, we now have moved through the 50 plus and 55. It's in five year increments, and the 60 and 65 and 70, and now we're playing in the 75 plus. But throughout those years, uh, we have won the uh, the U.S. team, of which I'm captain. Uh, we've won the world championship uh, 11 times. Uh, it's a very large, I mean, there are many, many countries involved. 
to describe the extent of Masters basketball in the world today. The last Masters championship in Orlando, there was 143 teams. It's huge. There's a, a tremendous amount of Masters basketball being played wow. in, in the world today. When you say won world championships, are you talking about 70 and over? Or 75 and over. 75. I mean, we won it in 50, 55, 60. We've won it in each one of those age brackets as we've moved through them. Um, um, well, the, the, you're going back to your high school days, that yeah. interests me, the, the, the fact that you were the, an all-white team. Uh, you know the last, the of last all-white all white team, and yeah. and just the whole. You know, Chicago is known as uh, there's some racial tension. Oh, uh, a great uh, deal at that time. I mean, we were literally fighting our way. The ironic thing is, we were fighting our way out of schools uh, in Chicago because there was uh, intense anti-Semitism in the city at that time in the early '50s. Uh, at the same time, the Dusable players. Uh, the all-black team, they're fighting their way out of schools on the south side of Chicago. We were on the north side because of all the racism that was going on. Mm. But our two teams, even though we played for the city championship three years in a row, we never had a fight. And and when we met again 37 years later for a reunion game, which they won, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like a, we had a dinner the night before. It was like a, a, a cousin's club meeting. I mean, it was just... The, the love and affection uh, that brought us together, the game of basketball, was just remarkable. Uh -huh. and, and we are, they, uh, at that time, we, all of our players were still alive. They, it was in 1987, they had only four guys still living from their team. Oh, wow. And now they only have two, and they're both close friends of mine that still live in Chicago. Um so that speaks volumes in itself about what it's like to grow up as a black man in this country. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, they, we originally, they were, both of those guys, uh, Sweet Charlie Brown and Carl Dennis, were both members of that original Masters team that we put together uh, after that reunion game and representing Chicago. The ones that were African-American? The, the two African-American guys. They were both on that original Masters team. Interesting. Yeah. So we, after being rivals for all those years, uh, we became teammates. And you still spend a little time in Chicago? I do. I go back uh, at least once or twice a year. Partly uh, at this point, um, we have some financial interests there, but I'm also working on a, a screenplay Um you know, I have my background educationally as I have two engineering degrees. Uh, there was in in that period of time, there wasn't much. I mean, yes, there were people who pursued their creative and artistic interests. Uh, I was not one of them. Um, the uh, So I, I went to school to get degrees so I could get a job. <laughs> yeah. And so I got a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and a master's in industrial engineering and worked in, um, in industry for a number of years for uh, both large corporations on corporate staff like Brunswick Corporation, Litton Industries. They had internal consulting organizations that I worked with, uh, but also occasionally would go off and run a small manufacturing company as general manager. So I had quite a variety of things. 
uh, was fired many, many times. <laughs> he didn't fit into the cor- did not corporate. fit into the corporate mold at all. Um, I mean, you know, I remember early on one of the guys said to me, "Well, the first thing I do when I get a new job is look for my replacement." It had nothing to do with doing a good job. It was to how to get to the next step, and I could never relate to that. I yeah. always uh, wanted to do uh, do the work I was trained to do. Well, obviously I met you later on in life, so I didn't, yeah. I've never known you as a, a corporate guy. I've known you as a filmmaker. Yeah. So you, somehow you got from, from those early jobs to get into filmmaking. Get into film, yeah, and, and which I was discouraged from doing most of my life. I mean, I was even discouraged. I, I was registered in architecture my freshman year, and I was talked out of it because I wasn't a good enough artist, which was nonsense. That's why I went into engineering. But uh, all of my creative instincts were very quickly repressed. Uh, I had a very big interest in scenic design, and I was told, oh, you got to live in New York or L.A. It's a union thing and blah, blah. So I was discouraged from doing that. I At one point, I was managing a venture capital fund, which was investing in high technology uh, companies, a lot of startups, and uh, happened to meet a man uh, who was investing in films, uh, first for a commercial finance company and then on his own. He was a remarkable guy who who had put the completion funding together for the graduate, the producers, Lion and Winner, a a lot of Joe Levine's films, who was a big-time producer out of New York. And uh, it was through him I got exposed to, uh, when I would (laughs) go to his office, uh, we became friends, and, uh, you know, he'd have stacks of screenplays everywhere, and I'd start reading them, and, you know, typically I'd say, well, hell, I could write (laughs) one of these just as well. And so I got uh, the bug just writing and uh, made a short film, which was not very noteworthy. I I mean, the only noteworthy thing was it was based on a short story, um, and uh, we couldn't cast. I was going to produce it. I had someone else writing it and directing it, and uh, it was my first venture in the film. Couldn't find a teenage girl to play the lead. Um, And um, the cinematographer said, you know, I shot a short film for a very wealthy family here in Chicago. Girl's very interested in in horses and horseback riding. She might be interesting for this. And I said, look, you know, we've gone through dozens of of people, uh, a lot of them from Steppenwolf, the theater company in Chicago, and... uh, so I said, well, look, have her come by the office, you know, and she apparently lived a few blocks away. And uh, Daryl Hannah walked into my office. Oh, my God. And so I immediately, I said, that's it. We found our lead. And there was a little half-hour film I intended as a, um, as a pilot for a series I wanted to do on PBS. I had had a bad experience with one of the, the uh, projects I got involved with with this fellow Bob Greenberg, we put together a, a screenplay development company, and I wrote a uh, a 60-page treatment of a of an idea that a fellow had come in with, and he was, for a variety of reasons, wasn't able to fulfill it. And I said, "Look, it's a it's a film called The Tap, and it was about a young teenager." 
we're talking early 70s here, uh, who, who learns how to tap into other people's computers, taps into the wrong computer, a government computer, and the FBI eventually tracks him down. And um, We call that hacking. Hacking today, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so I said, you know, let me take a shot at writing this thing. And I did, and it went out to L.A. to some people I knew, and nothing ever came of it. And then about four years later, it came out as the film War Games. It was exactly the same story. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, I didn't feel it was appropriate to get into the film industry by suing somebody, so I just took it as a... As a, uh, uh, yeah. I guess, a, a tribute to my uh, I, my interest. I, I had in a it. friend that, that happened. That to happened. That, well, sure. Well, Revenge of the Nerds yeah. was his, and uh, I think he ended up getting a, a story concept credit. He basically wrote it, and then somebody got hold of it and rewrote it. Yeah. Uh, but they, yeah. it sounds like that's kind of this what happened happens to you. a lot. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, but it discouraged me from when I decided I wanted to get into film. I decided Hollywood was too intimidating for me, you know, and they did things like this. And I think network television was sort of the same game. I decided on PBS. We're coming up to our break. Yeah. Uh, take a breath and then um, talk a little bit about, about film and whatever whatever else comes okay. up. Okay, sure, sure. Neil Miller is the guest. This is Train of Thought. Train of Thought is produced at Maximo Productions in Eugene, Oregon. For comments and feedback, send an email to rob at robtobias.com. We're back with Train of Thought. My name's Rob Tobias. I've got Neil Miller with me. Uh, We've been talking about... uh, some of his basketball exploits and his venture into filmmaking. Um, you, I know you've taken a lot of, uh, you've done some filmmaking with short stories that you've come across. Um, uh, but now you're, it seems like you're moving more into, into doing things that are from your own life experience. Um, yep. Some of your recent projects, uh, you've talked to me about things you're concerned with in the, going on in the world uh, I don't know maybe talk about uh, where you're headed in terms of your your writing and your filmmaking yeah originally after a two-year effort of trying to break into the film industry uh, I was able to get six films made for what was originally the American Playhouse series on PBS uh, I, I uh, wrote and produced and eventually directed six films for that series. And these are short films. How long were those? Well, they were the films were one hour, except oh. uh, one one of them was a feature length. Oh. But they were based on stories by Ray Bradbury, Kurt Vonnegut, John Updike, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, and um, they uh, were part of the original. Um, American Playhouse series. And your involvement, were, were you the uh, screenwriter, the director? What was your... I originally uh, started as a screenwriter-producer um, and had other people directing. One of the most noteworthy of those films was a film titled Who Am I This Time, 
which has uh, been very, very popular to this day. I mean, that was made in 1982. And um, I, I used to read a lot of Kurt Vonnegut, and this is this comes from Welcome, Welcome to the Monkey to, House, to the right. which is a, a collection of his short stories, yes. which are many wonderful stories. Yes, there. yes. And um, the um, uh, I was fortunate to cast Susan Sarandon in it and Chris Walken as the two leads, and then... I imagine they weren't big names at the time. Well, that's true. Chris had won an Academy Award for Deer Hunter at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, Susan had not won, and I was able to get uh, Jonathan Demme as the director who had not won his Academy Award for Silence of the Lambs. So, um, and it was a magical production. I mean, it came, we shot that one-hour film in 12 days. It, it just seemed to fall in place. And it, to this day, is v- I get a check every quarter. Uh, I am now uh, involved in, after being encouraged by a couple of people in the industry, uh, expanding it from a one-hour to a feature length. Mm-hmm. And the screenplay is uh, I'm, re- I'm I've just completed the rewrite of the screenplay, quite different, much more depth of character and same basic storyline about two extremely shy um, actors who can barely relate to one another and how they deal with that in their in their real lives. Did you? Uh- you got into screenwriting. You said, "Well, I can do this." But did you ever actually getting an education on no, how to write no, a screenplay? No, not at all. No, I uh, I read a lot of books about it, and I worked very hard at it. Um, but uh, you know, in especially now with doing "Who Am I This Time," uh, I, I'm still learning. I mean, you never you never stop learning when you're going into something like that. I had a pretty uh, repressed childhood and didn't relate to people all that much, so it's been a real challenge developing characters and writing dialogue, and um, I'm, I'm learning every day that I write, and I write every every single day now. So that is one challenge when you're working from somebody else's work, which, yeah. which is a Vonnegut story. Yeah. But uh, you were also talking about a project based on your own life, what you were talking about earlier, your, yes. your basketball uh, experiences. Uh, tell me a little bit about that yeah. project. Well, I think uh, there's a message there. Uh, well, you know, Samuel Goldman said, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. But... Um, there is something to be said for the relationship that started as a rivalry between our our team and that all-black team, uh, the rivalry we had, and how it, over the years, has developed into very, very close, lifelong friendships. And I, there's something to be said about that and about what we've gone through together and how that happened. So are you writing a drama about that? Uh, or it's is a, it narr- do- a narrative feature film, yeah. It's based on a true story. But it's not a documentary. Uh, it's it's a narrative, dramatic film. So you're telling the story, but through some characters and well, I'm using based actually, on a true story. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm really basing it on the characters. We both on our teams had r- r- very interesting guys uh, who were very funny, very dynamic, and and I'm using them as uh, the basis for this story. So you're working on. Uh, a drama again around the movie. Another, using this yeah, thing. it's a it's based on a true story, but it's a drama. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there's a, several other um, 
uh, screenplays that I'm working on simultaneously that I jump into. Uh, some are based on on uh, short stories or novellas. Uh, like I had a novella several years ago that I was adapting called The Bicentennial Man, written by Isaac Asimov. And uh, it was eventually um, acquired by Disney. And unfortunately, they they really butchered uh, a wonderful story. Uh, but uh, it, it spoke about humanity and what it means to be human. Mm. And Isaac Asimov um, wrote a number of stories based on that whole concept. And it's uh, also a, uh, about an an- android, right? It's about a, a robot who becomes an android. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, even even Robin Williams, who starred in that film, we had discussions about it, and he wasn't sure about the way Disney was handling it. Mm. But, you know, th- they do things a little different in, in Los Angeles. I remember when I first traveled to Disney to meet them after they'd acquired those rights from me, um, I had a high-level producer say to me, you know, uh, we love this story, but your screenplay, which they had acquired, your screenplay is too close to the story. And uh, it baffled me for a while until I realized that they don't think they're doing their job unless they change things. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't really understand the 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 basic premise behind the original material, which I've always respected and honored. Yeah. Um, but you know, even Isaac Asimov, when I had to ask him for another option to renew another option, has and I told him about my commitment to the integrity of the original material. Isaac wrote me a letter saying. Well, I can't use his exact words, but he said, don't worry about it. Hollywood's going to mess it up anyway. Whatever you And do. it was profound. <laughs> um, well, as someone who does some writing myself, I'm, you know, I do some songwriting, and sometimes yes. I like to take on social issues and, yes. and uh, political issues. It's a, sort of a challenge. Um, and you say you're still learning as a writer. Every day. What... Um, Tell me about your creative process. Like, how do you know? Like, I always wonder this. Uh, if I write a, a melody, you know, like, let's see, has somebody done that before? You know, how, who do you check in with or how do you uh, run it by yourself? Or what are your filters like to know if it's any good or if it's if you're on the right track? Or how well, do you... my, my wife, Nancy, has been invaluable in that process of editing. Um Nancy has a master's in English Lit, and she's, um, you know, there's some people, uh, I remember I was working on a, a, adapting a screenplay that was set in Brazil based on a novel, wonderful story, and um, I asked a, a Brazilian friend of mine to read it and tell me if I had really captured the culture of Brazil. Uh, and this man is a, uh, has a master's doctorate in linguistics. I figured he would really understand this. Well, he came back with things like, I don't like this character's name. And um, this isn't the drink that they drink. I mean, it, was, it had so little to do with the structure of that, of that wonderful story. Right. Whereas Nancy has this ability to perceive what isn't working in a scene 
if the sequence of scenes is not right, if the characters aren't developed well enough. So she's a real interesting um, source of uh, feedback for me. Beyond Nancy, do, do you ever think about an audience? Is there an audience that you're writing for? Or mar- that, that kind of speaks well, to I the have marketability. A, I have some friends in the industry, producer friends, um, actors, who will make comments. I, you have to save when you expose them to it because you get one shot at a fresh set of eyes. Mm. And so and there are points at which I will, uh, I will submit it to a friend uh, and ask for feedback. More recently, I've been working with a uh, um, what's called a writer's manager in L.A., who's very perceptive, who's been helping me with the Who Am I This Time. I've, uh, for some reason, am able to understand the structure. The uh, screenwriting is very oriented towards a dramatic structure that goes back to Greek times. Mm-hmm. It's a three-act structure with plot shifts, and there's a there's a there's a whole methodology to it and so uh, I, I tend to be very good at that kind of structure it's character development that I still struggle with and so that's where this woman in LA is really helping me to bring out more of the characters well it's been great uh, speaking with you today we're gonna have to sort of close it up a little bit but um, I'm looking forward to hearing seeing how your new projects come out. Uh, anything you want, other words of wisdom you want to leave us, leave us with for uh, our hope for the future? The main thing would be don't ever be discouraged from what you decide you want to do in life. Uh, pursue it. Whatever it is, you'll eventually, if you have any talent at it all, you'll find a way of making a living at it. But it's it's really um, very self-destructive to listen to other people's negativity about what you want to do. You have to pursue your own goals. Well, you've done that uh, a lot. So I've I tried. Can, I congratulate you on that. <laughs> Thanks for spending a little time. This has been Train of Thought. My name's Rob Tobias. been recording here at the studios of Maximo Productions in Eugene. Thanks for listening. Be well.